0: Today's reading is Genesis thirty-eight. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, And she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife. And perform the duty of a brother in law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar his daughter in law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shela, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like the, his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. For she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Ennaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. Then Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by her immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are the signet and the court and the staff then Judah identified them and said she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shela, and he did not know her again when the time of her labor came there were twins in her room and when she was in labor one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying this one came out first but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself! Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zara. So reads the word of God today.
1: Have, have you ever... Felt like you were living in a godless situation? Just think about even the last couple years of your life. Do any situations come to mind where everything just keeps going horribly wrong and it feels like God has left the building? Maybe it's a conflict in your family. Where nobody handles themselves the way they should, including, if you're honest, you. (laughs) Maybe it's a toxic culture at work that's that's just brimming with bitterness and backbiting and favoritism. Maybe it's a a week of scandal in your state government, right? Where it just seems like sordid accusations and details are, are piling up day after day after day. Well, the Bible, if you haven't realized this thus far, this morning may have been a smack in the face for you on this front, the Bible is full of sordid situations. Genesis 38 included. Seemingly godless situations. You read a passage like this, and I mean, let's be honest, you almost feel like you need a shower afterward, <laughs> Because the story of Judah and Tamar isn't just unnerving. It's downright sorted. It, it, it is as it were the, the air of the story is thick with wickedness and injustice and immorality and hypocrisy. And if you're reading through Genesis and you just met Joseph in chapter 37, you're thinking, what gives with 38? I mean, why, why interrupt what is otherwise a delightful rags to riches story of Joseph. Well, in reality, friends, this chapter is not an interruption at all. Remember, the last 14 chapters of Genesis are not about Joseph. Okay? What are they about? Genesis 37-2. The generations of Jacob, or what became of Jacob's descendants. He had more than one descendant. Joseph was just one of them. He had 12 sons, in fact. And so the events surrounding his sons not just Joseph, are all over these chapters. In many ways, the sexual sin of Judah and his sons in Genesis 38 will serve to highlight the sexual purity of Joseph in Genesis 39. And don't miss this, the fact that Judah goes from arrogantly enslaving his brother, Joseph, in Genesis 37, to what? Humbly sacrificing himself to protect a younger brother named Benjamin in Genesis 44. That change of character needs some explaining. And so Genesis 38 does all those things and more in the context of the whole book. But this is what I want you to focus on. This chapter also speaks to the bigger question I asked earlier. Why are there so many sordid situations and seemingly godless stories in the Bible? Why so many? I mean, we're kind of on a roll, right? 34, 38, next week 39, we're, we're tracking through. Well, I would argue that the reason there are so many sordid situations in the Bible is because our lives are full of the exact same kind of thing. Right? We just pretend that's not the case when we walk into church. But that's a joke, right? Our, our lives are full of seemingly godless situations. And so Genesis, 30, Genesis 38 answers that question. Why, why so many? Not just in the Bible, but in my life. And here's the answer it gives. Genesis 38 warns and reminds And assures you, friend, that the wickedness of man cannot prevail against the purposes of God. That's what it's doing. It's warning, it's reminding, it's assuring you that the wickedness of man cannot prevail against the purposes of God. So, if the plans and purposes of God are like a railroad track, okay, follow me here. It doesn't matter how many shipping containers twisted steel beams or concrete walls, the prince of darkness and all who follow him heap up on that track. You know what never happens? The engine and its precious cargo never derail. The wickedness of man cannot derail the purposes of God. Godless situations are God's specialty. Think about that. And over and over again, this entire chapter, it it confirms the truth of Psalm 2, verse 1. What do we read there? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Translation, let our purposes prevail and not his. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. King Jesus has purposes that cannot be derailed. And at least three of them come into view in this chapter. And every one of them proves that the wickedness of man cannot derail the purposes of God. So, you ready for this? Purpose number one judgment. The people of God will not escape the judgment of God. Focusing here on verses 1 to 11. If you're doing the math, and this is rough, but the events of this chapter, the whole chapter, take roughly 22 years. So it reads quickly, but in in time, it actually moves slowly. And and they provide a picture of what was happening to Joseph's brothers while he was waiting to be reunited with them in Egypt. And the picture it provides isn't pretty. So the chapter opens with, with Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, Abandoning the company of his family. That doesn't bode well. Why? Because Jacob's family was the family God had chosen for himself and set apart to bring blessing to the entire world. When someone is leaving that family, they're leaving something of God too. And his decision to go and and mix it up with a pagan adulamite named Hira does not reflect well on the spiritual condition of Judah's heart. In fact, I would argue, you can trace everything else that happens in Genesis 38, everything wrong and wicked, back to this moment where Judah did not heed the counsel of Proverbs 13:20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. It doesn't feel like that in the moment, does it? It feels like we got this. I'm in control. I, I, I can do this. I can, I can run with the wicked. I can play with the Adulamite. He's pretty cool. I got this. No, you don't. <gasps> Companion of fools suffers harm. And Judah's true colors emerge even more clearly in verse 2. What's he do there? He takes a Canaanite woman as his wife. If you've been to Genesis, this, this sounds familiar, right? The verbs here in this verse identify Judah as a man who has no interest in following the Lord. He's simply following his sexual desires. What does it say? He saw her, he took her, he lay with her. And the nameless identity of his Canaanite wife, it just highlights the lustful character of his nature. He doesn't care about her spiritual nature. She's a Canaanite. She's an idol worshiper. She's she's one of the women that Abraham warned Isaac, and Isaac warned Jacob not to marry, lest they lead their entire family away from following the Lord. But that doesn't matter to Judah. Because from verse two, it's very clear he only cares about her body. And initially, their union seems blessed. They start having all these kids, right? Three sons, quick succession, Ur, Onan, Shelah, and when, when Ur attains a marriageable age, verse six, Judah takes a wife for his firstborn, presumably from the Canaanites, and her name is Tamar. And up to this point, it it almost feels like Esau and the line of Esau in Genesis 37. It's just onward and upward for people who have no interest in God. Until God breaks in. And shatters Judah's illusion of autonomy. Look at verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We need to listen very carefully, friends. Association with the people of God does not indicate membership among the people of God. It doesn't. Er, think about this, was Jacob's grandson. Furthermore, he was Judah's firstborn. What, what's the tribe of Judah all about by the end of Genesis? It's the tribe that God has set apart to bring his saving plans to pass through the world, right? Ur is not some insignificant firstborn son. If anyone was born into a position of dignity and honor in God's house, it's Ur. But none of those spiritual connections ultimately mattered. What what ultimately mattered? It was Ur's moral character, or rather the lack of it, in the sight of God. And Genesis does not mince words on this front. Again, verse 7, Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Friend, coming to church, I'm grateful you came to church, but coming to church does not make you a Christian. Okay? Following Jesus in every area of life makes you a Christian. And and when it comes to deciding whether, whether you're actually following Jesus, please hear this. It's not your evaluation of yourself that matters or other people's evaluation of you that matters. It is God's evaluation of you that matters. He's the one to whom you're accountable. And that includes every young person in this room who has had the unspeakable privilege of growing up in a church. You're accountable to him, my young friend. And you will give an account to the Lord for your life no less than Ur. Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So what did the Lord do? Did he wring his hands in dismay? Oh my goodness. Did he shift quickly into plan B? Did did he plead with Ur like some sort of boyfriend longing for his girl to return? Just come back. killed him the Lord put him to death friend if, if you are running away from the Lord right now and maybe you're the only person that knows that verse 7 should stop you in your tracks cold because you think you were abandoning the so-called purposes of God. You think you found something better. You you think you found something more true, more real, more you. Friend, you're living a lie if you think like that. You can't escape or avoid the purposes of God. And if you won't submit to his rightful authority over your life, he will bring his sovereign purpose to pass through your life by condemning you, judging you, and destroying you. The people of God will not escape the judgment of God. And Ur's brother Onan, he fared no better. It wasn't like, oh, a one-off God had a bad day. No, no, there is something of the prevailing purpose of God in judgment. The people of God will not escape the judgment of God that just keeps right on trucking along in this passage. Because if you didn't know it in in the ancient Near East, offspring were everything, okay? They they didn't just provide for you in your old age. They inherited your possessions. They ensured your family didn't lose its land. And for Jacob and his family, the stakes when it comes to offspring were even higher. Why? Why? Because God had promised to make his offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, right? And to bring blessing to the entire world through his descendants. And that's that's why the, the sorrow and suffering of barrenness just gets so much attention in Genesis. Why? Because it's through the children, the descendants of Abraham, that God promised to bring all his covenant blessings to pass offspring are a big deal. And that's why the Lord later codified a practice known as leveret marriage. In Deuteronomy 25, you can read that later if you're curious, writing into law what seems to have been an already established legal practice in Judah's day and time. And it worked like this. So if a man was married died childless, left his widow childless, His brother was responsible for protecting the family line by marrying his sister-in-law, even if he was already married and raising up offspring for his brother. Now, in case that strikes you as really weird, leveret marriage was not a broad endorsement of polygamy. Don't go there with that, okay? It was a specific provision in the law designed to protect vulnerable widows and to keep a family from dying out and losing property allotted to them, which could only be passed along through the line of a son. So if anything, what Judah insisted Onan do required tremendous sacrifice on the part of the brother. Don't don't read that and think, oh man, God gave him a pass on sleeping with multiple women. No, no. It required great sacrifice. Why? Because it reduced Onan's share of the inheritance that he could pass along to his own kids. Right? If 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 think about it this way: if Onan, if none of my brothers have kids and they all die, oh, that's pretty cool. But Onan refused because that's what he valued. He refused to raise up offspring that wouldn't be considered his own. So he married Tamar in public, but he refused to give her offspring in private. He, he used her to satisfy himself while rejecting the procreative intent of their union. What did, what did Onan want? He wanted the gratification of sex without the responsibility of fatherhood. And in the process, he desecrated God's gift of sex. And he abused Tamar. But look at verse 10. It wasn't just Onan's attitude toward Tamar that was the big deal. It was his attitude toward the Lord. So remember, the the offspring of Abraham and his descendants are what? What? They're the ones God, God promised to use to bring blessing to the entire world. And he repeated that promise, I don't know, a couple hundred times throughout the book of Genesis. It was the heart of his covenant commitment to Jacob and his children and their descendants. So think about this. Onan wasn't just frustrating Tamar's desire to conceive or violating a social custom to provide, he was actively opposing God's agenda to save. That's why this was such a big deal. So, the Lord put him to death also. What's the big point here? If you refuse, friend, to submit to God's authority, you will be rightfully judged. If you take advantage of vulnerable women... You will be rightfully judged. If you oppose the work of God in your life and the people around you, you will be judged. The judgment of God begins in the house of God. Ur died, Onan died, because they were wicked in the sight of the Lord. The giver of life, he took away their life. Because they continued to sin. Refuse to repent. Friend, the Lord doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't minimize our sin. He responds to our sin with righteous judgment. And that judgment cannot be avoided. Cannot be removed. It cannot be taken away by you and me. Prevailing purpose one, the judgment of God. Here's the second prevailing purpose conviction. It's not just God's judgment that prevails, it's his conviction. So think about this. Another way to say this would be that God exposes our hypocrisy to humble our pride. He exposes our hypocrisy to humble our pride. Verses 12 to 26. So, in many ways, Judah, as it's pretty clear if you, if you listen as this passage was read, is just as wicked as his sons so he makes a pretense of doing what's right for tamar emphasis on pretense look at verse 11 remain a widow in your father's house till sheila my son grows up but that's all just a ruse right that's that's a joke why for he feared judah feared that sheila would die like his brothers so what's going on here Judah is blind to the spiritual realities at work in his family. He's totally blind. There, there's no recognition of the judgment of God. Okay the most important issue in the whole situation, which by the way, isn't tamar, it's whether Judah and his descendants are walking humbly before the Lord. No attention given to that. He doesn't fear the Lord. What's he fear? The death of his son. That's all he fears. And he superstitiously concludes Tamar is bad luck. So even after Sheila grows up, look at verse 14 quickly, he refuses to give Tamar to Sheila in marriage. That was his legal, moral responsibility, later secured under the law of Moses. So what's going on here? Big picture, instead of leading his family in practicing righteousness, Judah is perpetuating injustice. Instead of following the Lord and protecting the rights of the widow, he disobeys the Lord and ignores her plight. As it were, he leaves Tamar officially betrothed to Shelah, but functionally a widow with no way of escape. But notice, as with Onan... Withholding Tamar from Shelah isn't the biggest issue on the table in Judah's heart and life. Not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is his persistent refusal to trust the Lord. That's what's at stake here. What, what, think about this. What did God command Jacob and in turn all his descendants to do in Genesis 35 11? I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and Multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. What what is that scream to Judah? Judah, you have a spiritual responsibility to raise up offspring as an expression of faith in God who has promised to give you descendants and multiply your descendants. I mean, if nothing else, right, the death of Ur and Onan should have been like, blinking red light to Judah, you don't create life and you can't uphold life. The life of your children, Judah, no no less than your own life, is in the hands of the Lord and the Lord alone. Judah should have urged Shelah to learn from his brother's downfall. Follow the Lord, Sheila. He he should have entrusted Shelah into the Lord's care, believing that God would fulfill his word. And bring life in the midst of death. But Judah refused. He refused and he took matters into his own hands. So it sounds like this. It doesn't matter what God promised. It doesn't matter what God's told me to do. I'm not giving up Sheila. If I give Tamar to him in marriage, he'll probably die, and I will not take that risk. I don't care about God's purposes and plans. I don't care if my family line dies out. I don't care if I have to violate the rights of a vulnerable woman in the process. I'm not losing Sheila. And I'm going to control this situation to protect what I want, and what I want is Sheila. Do you realize... That is the exact opposite of Abraham's attitude toward Isaac. When he willingly offered up Isaac on the altar, Genesis 22, believing that that even if God had to raise him from the dead, God Almighty would not fail to bring his promises to pass and provide his son. But Judah refuses to take that risk with Sheila. Because he doesn't trust the Lord. He tries to control the situation instead of trusting God with the situation. You know what happens when we try to control situations instead of trusting God with situations? We end up abusing all the people around us. Just like he did with Tamar. He, Judah pretends to be God instead of trusting God and, and he tramples on Tamar. He, he should have provided for her in his own household, right? But what does he do instead? He forces her to return to her father's house when Onan dies, which is really not surprising because what? You, you can't genuinely love your neighbor unless you first genuinely love the Lord. And loving the Lord begins with trusting and obeying his word. And that's exactly what Judah was not doing. He was decidedly disloyal to the Lord. And yet, this is remarkable. Tamar remained decidedly loyal to Judah. Think about this. She concocts a scheme by which she will force Judah to raise up the offspring he was supposed to raise up by giving her to Shelah. So listen carefully. In terms of her ultimate aims, Tamar is more noble than her father in law. That's pretty clear. However, Genesis is noticeably silent when it comes to endorsing her methods. Do you catch that? It's silent. And all told, if you want my opinion, what happens next seems like a classic case of doing the wrong thing, prostitution, for the right reasons. Raising up offspring and, and keeping with the Lord's commands. But even in saying that, we have to be really careful, right? Because there's no explicit record of Tamar doing any of this for the Lord's sake. So many things we wish we could know, but we don't. We have to humbly stop. But regardless, this is very clear. The Lord uses this woman to humble Judah. Big time. So, so how's it go down? She tricks him into thinking that she's a cult prostitute which Judah is all too eager to solicit. Just goes to show you how far he'd become a Canaanite himself. And, and Tamar is veiled the entire time, so Judah never recognizes her true identity. And he winds up leaving the ancient Near East equivalent of his ID and all his credit cards with Tamar. That's, that's what those signet, cord, staff, that, that's the modern equivalent, Okay. And ironically, this is so ironic, the man who refused to honor the legal right of his daughter-in-law keeps his obligation to a cult prostitute. And he tries to send her the promised goat through his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. But of course, verse 20, by that time his friend gets there, Tamar is long gone, and Judah is none the wiser. And verse 23, if you look there, reminds us that up to this point, he still has no fear of the Lord. There's no awareness of his own injustice and, and immorality. His only concern next to protecting Sheila, is that he not look like a fool in the eyes of the people around him. Verse 23, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. If, if only, if only Judah knew what was about to happen Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Burned. As head of the family, Judah and the culture at the time had the legal right to met out whatever punishment he saw fit. And in one sense, Tamar is guilty of sin. Why do I say that? Because in Genesis 2... Long before the Mosaic Law explicitly forbade sexual relations between a father and his daughter-in-law, the Lord did what? He reserved sexual intimacy for the marriage relationship between a biological man and a biological woman. The Mosaic Law wasn't new in that sense. It was simply establishing and building on that creation ordinance. And so in light of that creation ordinance, the sexual liaison between Judah and And Tamar, not married, was clearly wrong. But even by the standards of the later Mosaic law, Judah's sentence was cruel and unusual. Entirely cruel and unusual. He he was undoubtedly eager, right? Surprise, surprise, to eliminate Tamar from the scene and, and just get this kind of nagging, flashing light screaming you're not a just man you're not a just man let's just get that out of the way burner but of course the great irony in judah's words right is that in condemning tamar he's condemning who himself exactly Because Tamar stooped to such a scheme only because Judah refused his God-given responsibility to raise up offspring in his family by giving Tamar to Shigla, And verse 25 strikes the fatal blow. Look there. As she was being brought out, Tamar, she sent word to her father-in-law, Judah, by the man to whom these things belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, identify whose these are the signet and the cord and the staff and the ID and the name on all these credit cards I mean this is emotionally complicated right and sometimes we laugh because it's uncomfortable but, but I want you for just a minute to imagine your Judah. I mean, imagine the shock. We see this coming. Judah didn't see this coming. And the man who deceived his father with a goat and a garment was now deceived by a goat and a garment. Only in this case, he wasn't just deceived. He was humble. He was convicted. The Lord humbled his pride by publicly exposing his hypocrisy. Look at verse 26. Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. In public. She remained faithful. I did not. If if anyone is in the wrong here, It's me. The man who once had a, moments ago, a high moral standard for Tamar and a much lower to non-existent moral standard for himself was finally forced to acknowledge and admit and confess his sin. Friends, do you quickly condemn other people for the very same sin you commit yourself? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) We shake our heads in disgust, both in conversation and on social media, at a sordid accusation against the public figure, but then we go off in the privacy of our home and take in all the pornography we want. you wish your parents would listen to you and not get defensive when they share something or do something that hurts you or you think is wrong but then you get bitter and sulk whenever they return the favor you praise God for his unmerited forgiveness on Sunday morning but then at Monday at 7 when you and your wife are brushing your teeth you totally give her the silent treatment I could go on. Every one of us, if we're honest, right? And that's the big if, lives in this gap far too often between what we say we believe and what we know is right and how we actually live. And sadly, can can we just acknowledge this together? The world is often quicker to admit hypocrisy than the church. That's crazy why because we of all people have every reason in the gospel of jesus christ to bring all our junk and sin and brokenness out of the light and say god help me confident that that the blood of christ is sufficient to forgive all of our sin and forgive all our hypocrisy when we hide hypocrisy we are denying the gospel don't do that don't do that God God was extraordinarily gracious to Judah just extraordinarily gracious think about this he could have killed him I mean that's what the entire sequence would set you up to expect right and Judah was wicked in the sight of the Lord the Lord put him to death he doesn't do that I mean but Judah didn't just sin once or twice. I mean, it's not like, oh, well, Judah gets off because, you know, exception clause 4B. No. I mean, he sinned over and over again, <laughs> repeatedly. And, and he didn't just hurt himself, he violated vulnerable people. So what did God do? He exposed his hypocrisy to humble his pride. And in so doing, he gave Judah a gift. From this morning, The Lord himself is eager to give you the same gift. You know what the gift is? It's the gift of conviction. The gift of conviction. He brought Judah to a point where the sin he was most aware of was his own. And it took strong medicine because Judah was a proud man, a very public act of humiliation to bring him to that point, but it was an expression of God's kindness to Judah. Whenever the Lord brings conviction Instead of judgment, it is an expression of his mercy. Don't run from conviction because the Lord's doing the same thing today. If right now your conscience is pricking you, that voice in your head is talking to you, alerting you to the presence of sin in your life, friend, humble yourself before the Lord and pray earnestly for the gift of godly sorrow and godly conviction. Pray that when, like Judah, you're trapped in pride, when when you're mired in a cycle of fear and injustice and and sensuality, that the Lord would get your attention. (laughs) That he'd break in. That he'd be like a pedestrian running in front of the car. Stop! Pray for that. Because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. You, You want a loving God to convict you. But even in saying that, I, I can hear the question, why should I do that? Why should I admit my sin the way Judah was forced to admit his sin? What, what does that accomplish other than adding one more voice to this, this, this circle of, Hi, I'm Matthew, and I'm a big old fat mess. Welcome to reality. We're we're all broken and we commiserate in our collective brokenness and scream at hypocrites together. Does that sound familiar? Friend, the, the reason, please hear this. The reason that we must bring our hypocrisy and our sin into the light and humbly embrace the gift of conviction when God exposes our hypocrisy to bring that gift to us is because there are not merely two purposes that prevail. There's a third. It's not just judgment that prevails or conviction that prevails. You know what the third purpose is? It's salvation. Salvation. Unstoppable purpose number three, God uses our sin to accomplish our salvation. (laughs) Look at verse 27. This is remarkable. Just remarkable. When Tamar gives birth, how many boys are born? Two, right? You know what that number is? It's the exact number of sons that Judah lost. I mean, that's a beautiful picture of redemption. Okay, that, the God who destroyed two of Judah's sons in an act of divine justice has now restored two more sons to him in an act of divine mercy. I mean, it's, it's as though the Lord said to Judah, son, now that I've humbled you, why don't we try this whole parenting thing again? And the first child to, to partially emerge from the womb, the technical firstborn, is Zerah. And he's immediately associated with the color red, no less than Judah's uncle Esau was at his birth. But but notice the parallels between Zerah and Perez and Jacob and Esau, they don't stop there, okay? Zerah's twin brother, Perez, pushes him out of the way, beating him out of the birth canal and is appropriately named Perez, or breach, as the midwife said in verse 29, what a breach you have made for yourself. And the birth of twins to Judah and Tamar, you know what it does? It prompts a comparison between Isaac, whose wife Rebekah also gave birth to twin boys, and Judah, which does what? It elevates the line of Judah above and over his brothers. It flags his importance. And given Judah's disdain back in Genesis 37, toward the mere thought of Joseph the younger being exalted above any of his brothers, including Judah, the birth of Perez was one more way of God humbling Judah, humbling his pride, and reminding the man, my ways are not your ways. I don't roll according to the expectations and traditions of men. I delight to choose what is rejected and of little account and no importance in the eyes of the world and give it great dignity in the kingdom of God. The birth alone screamed that. Because friends, from the very beginning, God has been in the business of of choosing what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. Right? He's been doing that from the very beginning. And here at the end of Genesis 38, he does that again. Listen, because if you look in Ruth 4, you'll see that 10 generations later, a young boy named David was born into the line of Perez. And that David became the king of Israel. And generations later, another king was born into that line. Only this king wasn't an ordinary king. He was the king of kings, the eternal son of God, Jesus Christ. Born into the line of Perez. Who who would have dreamed that? Right? You think Judas saw that coming? I don't think so. A liaison forged through the worst sort of scandalous sins. What do we have? Injustice, deception, prostitution, incest. That liaison becomes in the providence of God the very fountainhead of our salvation. Check that out. Which is why the Apostle Paul got it right. In Romans 5.20, when he declared this, serving the work of God throughout history and the redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ, what did Paul say? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's the kind of God we serve. And and the birth of Perez, at the very end of one of the most sordid tales in the entire book, it screams something at us. You know what that is? God doesn't just accomplish his saving purposes despite our sin or keep his saving purposes from being defeated by our sin, he accomplishes his saving purposes through our sin. That's remarkable, friends. Not to justify our sin or reward our sin, but to glorify his name. So listen, if you are willing to respond to the reality of God's judgment... By embracing the gift of conviction, confessing your sins, humbling yourself before the Lord, then you will discover, friend, that God delights to take the darkest, most weak, most shameful, most disqualifying parts of your heart and life, go into all those rooms. And you know what he does in all those rooms? He's on a mission to show you just how great his redeeming power is in those rooms. That's how God rolls That that didn't start with Jesus Christ, by the way. It culminated in Jesus Christ. But he's been doing that from the very beginning of the Old Testament. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not illicit, sexual liaisons included, okay? To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God who became to us, what did Christ become? Wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What's redemption? It's God taking what is most sordid, our sin, and using it to accomplish what is most glorious, our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the God we serve, friends. So if you were thinking about child abuse or adultery or incarceration or suicide at the beginning of this sermon when I ask you to imagine a godless, seemingly godless situation, take heart, friend. Take heart. Because the wickedness of man cannot prevail against the purposes of God. Amen? What does the Lord say in Jeremiah 32? Verse 27. Behold... I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. The God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Nothing's too hard for him. Nothing. His purposes will prevail, right? In judgment, in conviction, in salvation. So so beware, friend, of the pride that would survey the landscape of your life right now and see a point at which you say, hmm, Thus far the purposes of God go, but no farther. There is no limit to the prevailing purposes of God because as Abraham Kuyper once said, there is no square inch of this entire universe over which God does not say, mine. God isn't like a bull rider at the rodeo. Hanging on for dear life. In the midst of situations that feel completely out of control, hoping wickedness doesn't toss him into the stands, he quietly and faithfully continues, as he always has, to bring his sovereign will to pass in wickedness and through wickedness. And so we sing songs like this O oh, fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling faith. So God, we trust in you. Oh God, we trust in you. When tears are great and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are ever so thankful for your prevailing purposes. And we thank you today that you have not left us to guess how you roll in sordid situations. But you've put them in the Bible. You've waved them in our face. So that if we're willing to slow down and listen, we will see, as you have shown us today, that your purposes are not ever derailed by the wickedness of men. Father, increase our faith in all the seemingly godless situations that are around us and in us right now. The things in our family and in our world that make no sense, that that we just can't stop thinking about because they seem so godless. I pray that we would not look for a refuge in what we can see, but we would run for refuge to the God who has shown us himself. You, And in your prevailing purposes of judgment and conviction and salvation, we would find new reason to trust you when nothing else makes sense. Amen.